everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. As usual, I am Stephanie and I am here today with my excellent friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Lee O'Brien. Hi, Lee. Hello, Stephanie. And Stephanie I, as usual. Stephanie as usual. Well, I feel like I, I introduce myself every week. I feel like people know who I am now, but yes. I mean, you know, there's always new listeners. Always new listeners. Yes, exactly. Um, so we are here today together to talk about a writer who we both love. And a writer who is probably going to be around the news quite a bit this year because very soon it'll be her 200th birthday. And that writer is Emily Bronte, born on the 30th of July, 1818. It is now 2018, so it's been 200 years. Yeah. Um, so, Lee, mm -hmm. when we think about Emily Bronte and the Brontes as a whole, I suppose, mm -hmm. what kind of ideas or associations do we have with the Brontes now? When I, when I think back to how I encountered the Brontes, I, I think I actually came through Jane Eyre mm. because the novels go in, in kind of fashions, you know, people... Yeah. Because years ago, it was all Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre, Charlotte. And then suddenly, for some reason, people discovered Wuthering Heights. <laughs> so... Um, but what I was going to say is that a lot of people come to the Brontes because of the kind of mythology of them mm. as, as, as writers, as three young women who lived, on the face of it, incredibly isolated lives in a very dark and, and, and stormy kind of place, you know, the Yorkshire Moors, and they lived in a parsonage right next door to the graveyard. <laughs> and and I, I I I think there's this I think a lot I'd be interested in what the listeners know about the Brontes but I think a lot of people just know about the Brontes yeah. as this collection of amazing women even if they don't know the individual novels certainly they won't know the poems much I don't think mm. and so there's I all when I when I'm teaching Wuthering Heights I always start talking to them about the Bronte myth because I think the myth serves Charlotte Bronte really well because of Jane Eyre and the connection with Elizabeth Gaskell writing mm. The Life of Charlotte Bronte. Doesn't serve Emily Bronte really well because she was such a she was such a fascinatingly reserved and interior kind of person. So I think I, I think Charlotte had some some sort of social skills and she was always looking to get out into the world, but Bronte, Emily Bronte, only left the parsonage four times in her 30 years of life. And each time she almost died of homesickness. Mm. She had to come back and she loved the moors and she must have loved the parsonage itself. And they had this wonderful servant called Tabitha Ackroyd who was full of all the lore, uh, of folklore of the Yorkshire Dales and, and, and the Yorkshire... Um, the myths of the place full of goblins and, and the supernatural and I I think I don't know I, I just think that that sense of where where these amazing novels come from is really so mysterious so I think a lot of people sort of come into the Brontes from, from that perspective that their lives are fascinating not not in 21st century terms because it, the, there's not lots of <laughs> Yes, yeah. and drugs and rock and roll, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, but they're clearly their imaginative lives had such power. So, 
Um, but as I say, that kind of mythology doesn't really serve Emily because of all of them, Emily's the one we know least about. Mm. A lot of Charlotte's writing um, survives, and Charlotte wrote a lot more than Emily. Emily only has one novel, and of course that novel is Wuthering Heights, which I think is the greatest novel ever written, but mm. you know, that's just me. Um, but hardly, there's the poems, there's Emily's um, poems. Her, the Juvenilia, the Bronte Juvenilia mm. is very famous, mm. the, the, the mythical, mythological um, countries of Gondor and Angria. Gondor was Emily and Anne's territory. Angria was Charlotte and Branwell's territory. But the prose narrative of Gondor has been lost. Mm. We think, actually, I think it's possible that Charlotte might have destroyed it. We, we, we just, but we don't and isn't there also know. a rumour of a second novel that Charlotte destroyed? If there is, I've never heard it. I've never heard, uh, because she wrote Wuthering Heights quite late, so it would, I guess it would have had to have been an earlier novel. I've heard that rumour. I don't no. know if it's entirely... No. I mean, obviously, if it's destroyed, there's no record of it. But no. I have no. heard that floated around. I don't know how reliable that is. Though. In a sense, I think Gondor is a lost novel. Mm. Um, that may be what people think of. I, I don't know, because there's... We know... Because a lot of her poems that survive were embedded well, in the, the Gondor narrative, narrative. Yeah. so we know something of of the um, personae and, and the settings of Gondor. So, um, and she was writing that and involved in that until almost up to her death. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah. So I I I don't know. She's such a she's just so mysterious and and so amazing. And so that's how I sort of. I think I must have been aware somehow of that, aware of Charlotte first. And then once I read Wuthering Heights, I, I've, I don't know, I've read this novel so many times, I'm just so endlessly fascinated by mm. the novel. So for me, it leads to Wuthering Heights very quickly. Mm. And only recently for me, um, a lot of her poetry, I've taught some of her poems for a long while, and it always fascinated me in class because the ones I teach are those in the Norton Anthology. And on the face of it, they're such simple, almost like ballads, lyrical ballads. And they baffle students. Mm. And I, it's always fascinated me that something apparently so simple is really so mysterious for the students. There's so much going on in these apparently simple poems. Yeah. What about I, you? Well, I, I think I, I don't really remember... In when I came to Wuthering Heights because I feel like I don't remember reading it the first time because I've read it so many times yes. and it's just become part yeah, of me. Exactly. Yeah. I think I probably read Jane Eyre first, yeah. like you, because I think that's the kind of novel also too that young, uh, it's given to young girls, I think. Yes, it is. Um, that's true. It was. Or it was, it yeah, is, I don't yeah. know, yeah. Um, so I think I came to it second, but... Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the Brontes and the Bronte myth, as you say, and there's a great book by LaCasta Miller called The Bronte Myth, um, and the best thing that she says in that, I think it's her that says this, I'm pretty sure it's her, because I did some work early on um, on, on Bronte, um, is that the thing about the Brontes is that you, if you open the back door of the parsonage, you're on the moors, you're in this isolation, but if you open the front door, you're in a village, and you're connected to the world, and you're getting, you know, um, magazines, you're getting newspapers, you're getting the the, um, the cut and thrust of everyday discourse on life. So you're not, they're not as entirely, you know, removed from the world as I think that mythology 
that's, would suggest. I think that's probably true. I, that reminds me, I was reading something quite recently. Oh, is it Christine Alexander? Somebody is actually saying exactly what you're saying, that yes, they were isolated, but A, they were a fairly large family, mm. even though so many of them, tra the siblings, tragically died, but there was... Um, there, there were a few of them living in the parsonage, and B, yes, they had because he was the reverend, you know, the parson. Mm. They, they were connected to mm. to their world in in a way that part of the mythology obscures. Mm. But how? What what interests me is it how all this actually relates to Emily? Mm. I think is really problematic. Um, she's got that, I use it in one of my lectures, she's got that wonderful scene. She's describing them in the, the they're at the kitchen table and mm. they're peeling potatoes and they're cooking and they're preparing a meal. And she goes from describing that straight into the gondols have mm. invaded Galdine or whatever it's called. And, and it's as if these two things are just, there's no separation yeah. between being at the kitchen table and doing certain things with her body but her imagination is elsewhere. Yeah. And so how I, I, I get the impression of everything I've read about her, that she's the sort of person who, when she heard guests coming, she disappeared. She's Carpa, yeah. <laughs> Which I, I love. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I do much the same thing. <laughs> I think Charlotte would go to the door. And and Anne, Anne's different too. But I just get the impression that, that Emily just really... It didn't have a lot of time for, for the rest of the human race. A, a very problematic relationship with Charlotte, very close to Anne. They, mm. they, they, were, they were wonderfully close. Thank goodness she had someone. And Branwell was a bit problematic. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Branwell. No. And he Wastful was closer. <laughs> yeah, and, and he was closer to Charlotte always. Yeah. So, but, but I think your point is very well made that we can overdo that sense of complete isolation. Well, what, what troubles me about that, that kind of mythology of her, and I think that with Emily, there is a, you know, truth to it that she was very reserved, that she was very private, that she didn't like being outside the family home, that she didn't want um, fame, she didn't want anyone to know who she was, mm. that she was this 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 very reserved, isolated figure. Mm. But I think what worries me about the myth is that it tends to obscure the the work. Yeah. It's like she's some As kind of divinely inspired oh. genius that's plopped out no. of you know that's. Mm. Just plopped out of the the sky and yes. landed as this you know perfectly formed writer. Mm. It doesn't. It it sort of obscures the the actual work and the um, the labour, I suppose, of of writing mm. in in this within this myth of the divinely inspired genius who somehow is <clears throat> above you know everyday concerns. And and even worse than that, th that belief that they just somehow would, existed as writers. There was a lot of criticism of Emily Bronte in particular as by male critics, males in particular, I'm sorry, but tiresome, <laughs> the, the men, tiresome yes. new critical male. One of them was just arguing that she didn't know what she was doing, you know, the, the, the te the tech, because the technique of Wuthering Heights is extraordinarily complex and yeah. extremely sophisticated. And so there, there's a line of criticism of she just, you know, she was this child of the imagination and she just didn't know the perfection of what she was doing. Well, that I, I just think that's completely wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even if you look at just, you know, one very kind of basic thing that is, has often been noted about Wuthering Heights is that you can pretty much plot anything that happens 
in that novel to a specific day. Everything. 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 And it's not yeah. and it's not unfolded yeah. in a chronological way. It's just that there's enough kind it's of detail. Embedded. It's embedded. Yes. Because you see yes. it, you know, because of the yes. complex structure you see most yes. mostly things yes. in flashback and so forth. Yeah. Um but, but everything, everything is perfectly absolutely plotted. Yeah. 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 That's and it's a, and there's so many yeah. patterns to it. Yeah. That's, That's not accidental. Yeah, that is no, somebody who has no. labored and labored over this. Yes. With such almost uncanny skill yeah just le a level of skill and observation of the natural world that's cp sanger's um essay yeah the chronology, chronology of Wuthering Heights, yeah. published by the hogarth press in the 19 1920s somewhere just the most beautiful piece of analysis it's it's just goes through every page almost every word of the novel and just charts what she's doing and as you say how when a, a flower is, is mm. um, mentioned as being in bloom, it's absolutely specific to that time. Mm. And the very complex genealogy of the family is all worked out. And it's just, yes, that, that, see, that I think is one of the magical, I keep, I keep do. I'm as bad as everybody else, I keep using words like magical and uncanny, but I think one of the most extraordinary things about Wuthering Heights is that it is this combination of word-by-word word specificity. Mm. Everything is nailed down to the world and to the people living in it and, and how it's all unfolding. And then there's this wild violence of mm. it all. So how it's just yeah. amazing trying to track that when you're reading. That's all. That's what always gets me too. And I think the last time I reread this, I cannot even remember how many times I've read it, but the last time I reread it, it struck me this... The thing that struck me most, because you, you see new things in it every time, mm. is that conjunction between the patterns, yes. which are very, you know, even the patterns of, of people's names. You know, yes. when um, Catherine finds the, the um, yeah. when Lockwood finds the yeah. um, Catherine writing out her name yeah. and she writes Catherine Earnshaw Heathcliff yes. Linton. Yeah. And, you know, people pointed out if you go backwards, that's the second Kathy's journey too. She starts as Kathy Linton, yeah. becomes Kathy Heathcliff Linton. Yeah. Eventually oh, wow. becomes Kathy Earnshaw, so they go in opposite directions. Everything is such beautifully patterned and precise, yeah. and yet it's this story about violence, about passion, about yeah. um, this unruly yeah. kind of yeah. um, landscape. Yeah. And you think, how do those two things sit together? But they do. Yeah. And unruly people. I mean, Heathcliff yeah. and, and Kathy, the first Kathy, two of the most astonishing characters ever written. And it's because of the wildness of them. Yes, I. And and yet, I I don't know. See, that that sense of that great specificity that only comes with a very sophisticated reading of the novel. I don't I I I don't know the Moors. Um, I don't know that part of England at all. I'm going to fix that up. <laughs> but I when when I first read it, I don't think I would have had the sense of that deep plotting pattern. Mm. It's only because you and I have been reading and teaching it for and reading about it for a long while that you, as readers, we accumulate all this all mm. this information about the novel, and it makes the um, the different readings that we have almost incompatible with each other. I don't. I, I'm sure when I read it, I must have been in my late teens. I I just don't think I would have had the skills to pick no. up that detail. But what I did love and was just amazed by is the violence I, I, yeah. I, and and the extremes of 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 the feeling and and the behavior 
That's what I responded to. It's only with subsequent more informed readings that I've picked. And, and mm. CP saying, as soon as I read that, then I started to understand that pattern mm. within it's like the everything chaos. falls into place yes yeah. it's like some game that you're playing and and you see something and then you like the russian dolls or something you you, you take it apart mm. and there's something else inside it and you take that apart and there's but that's something. what they call the chinese box structure yes. where there's a story yes. in, in folding stories yes. because it's yes. all comes to us through lockwood and through nelly and, and i've always yeah. loved not lockwood but before we just get away from that thing about um you know, the isolation and stuff. It, it was Christine Alexander that I was reading. She has an edition of the Gondol Saga, mm. and, and she's got so many editions. She's just, she's just an amazing mm. um, Bronte scholar. But she has, describes what the Bronte children did, which was set up a replication of the public publishing industry. Mm. So they not only wrote their novels and their journal articles, but they replicated the journals in the little sewn books, the tiny, Which are tiny, tiny yeah, little yeah. things that mm. you can barely, barely read. But they replicated, so it was like a properly published book, a journal, and then they wrote reviews of it. <laughs> so they knew, as you said, the journals were all coming through the front door in the post yeah. box, Blackwoods, Blackwoods particularly, yeah, the yeah. Edinburgh Journal. And they... Um, they replicated, they knew through their reading, this entire mm. publishing industry. Mm. And so they were reading, they were reading stuff. They were reading Sir Walter Scott. They read a lot of Byron, which mm. I'm fascinated and fascinated by that because I think Byron is so obviously so important for Heathcliff and that kind of Byron, Byronic hero sort of stuff. Yeah. But it's interesting that they were reading literary stuff and folk tales and everything but they were reading reviews mm. so they understood not only that creative process but the response of the publishing industry to the creative the business, process yeah the sort of business side of it the business yeah. side of it but the critique side of it mm. that everything that was published had a million people trawling over it and writing and about it. it yeah that's really interesting i think that again goes towards <laughs> that kind of like these are just you know three women in floaty dresses wafting across the moors, yeah, you know, which, yeah. you know, is somewhat true, but also does them a disservice, I think. Yes, yeah, it does. Yes. I don't, I don't think Emily ever wore a wafty dress. No, I'm sorry. I, I think she was far <laughs> too sensible for that. Um, I was going to say, when you were talking about um, readings of Wuthering Heights, yeah. um, the two readings of Wuthering Heights that really irritate me are the readings that read it as, as, a, as a love story, especially... Yeah. The Kathy, the first Kathy in Heathcliff, yeah, yeah. as this unproblematic love story, love. <laughs> yeah. and the second is the response that goes along the lines of, "Oh, Kathy and Heathcliff aren't very nice, therefore I hate the book." Oh. Those those yeah. <laughs> readings irritate me to no end because mm. I think they entirely mm. miss the point of the book. The point of the book mm. is not the Kathy and Heathcliff mm. are this, um, you know, super romantic relationship goals kind of couple <laughs> because they are not, it's and not. <laughs> you know, and secondly, I think that's so boring to say that yes. they're not very nice people therefore I don't care I've had a few students saying, saying mm. that that they just they cannot stand the novel because it's full of horrible people to which I say great bring it on uh, yeah, bring well, on yes, some more horrible yes. people take that student out of the room yeah <laughs> no I, I don't understand that either but look I have to confess I think as a teenager I would have read the Heathcliff Kathy oh, yeah, thing yeah, yeah. as this yeah. amazing it's a, 
It's like the Rochester Jane Eyre thing. Yeah, and then you grow up and then you think, oh, this guy's a dork. And then you think, well, well, then you start to actually read the novel properly. (laughs) Well, you start to take notice of, you know, Heathcliff's abusive behaviour and and the, 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 the real genuine violence of the man that I think when you when you're sort of buying into that romance plot thing, you tend to push that aside. But so which is she predicts in the novel because that's, that's exactly, Isabella. That's Isabella. That's exactly what I was going to say. Look what happens to Isabella. The people who read yeah. it as this kind of you know like oh it's this fantastically passionate love story. That's what Isabella thinks about Heathcliff, yeah. and she yeah. learns to regret it almost immediately. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, and he's so terrible to her. He's so he terrible to her. Beats her. He's violent. He kills her little dog, just as they're leaving. He, he, you know, he's um, he's unspeakably terrible. I don't know why I like him. I'm sorry, I still like Heathcliff. I, I still like him, but too. he's unspeakably yeah. dreadful. He's unspeakably dreadful. But, but he's but... a force of nature. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the kind of great unanswered, well, there's a few great unanswered questions about Wuthering Heights, isn't there? So, you know, who's Heathcliff? Yeah. Where did he come from? Is yeah. he is yeah. he um, an illegitimate son? Is he a slave? Is he yeah. is he black? Mm. Is he part isn't black? Isn't it wonderful the way she leaves that so open? Yeah. With Mr Earnshaw going on this sudden quest to Liverpool, mm. going to bring them back the three gifts, but he bring the two gifts are broken and the other gift um, is, is Heathcliff. Mm. The, baby, the child is two, I think, when he's brought back. Yeah, I love the way she leaves. Nobody ever will know. Yeah. I've got a reading of that because what it, it seems to me that Wuthering Heights is a prose ballad. Mm. Um, and and there's all these amazing ballads. There's a demon lover sequence, mm. uh, the demonic lover. And to me, it, w- one of the extraordinary things Bron- Emily Bronte does is she stages this, I was going to say collision, but it's not a collision, this, this mixing up of brilliant realism and the supernatural, mm. uncanny mm. world of the ballad. And the, the gothic, you know. The yeah. world of extremes, the mm. border ballads of, of, of violence and, and most of the love ballads end tragically. And there's, there's the, the, and a lot of um, the ballads are incestuous ballads, the mm. bad brother and, and all the rest of it. So to me, a lot of, once I read more and knew more about the ballads, Heathcliff started to seem less mysterious to me because I started reading him in those kind of formal terms that Bronte is is taking a figure from one mode one genre and putting it in another Mm. and then watching and using Lockwood I've read a wonderful description interpretation very early interpretation of, of Lockwood as Bronte's idea of the young London male who'd walk into a bookshop and buy Wuthering Heights. Mm. And, and isn't that, that that's a brilliant? Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what, what he is. He is. Yeah. And who would ne- who never Lockwood? Ne- I love Lockwood too, but he never understands what he's seeing no. and what he's going through. He's such an outsider. Right towards the end, he just. He, he misreads everything. And that's why he's always at standing at windows watching. Yes. You know? He's, he can never get into that world. He's always shut out. And I just, that's one of the most extraordinary aspects of the novel. And he's, I think, too, he's a figure of the w- reader in the text, isn't mm. he? 
Yeah, because we're all like Lockwood. Yeah. We come to the gate and Heathcliff's standing there and we insist on crossing the threshold. We mm. shouldn't, but we do, just as Lockwood does. Mm. And we as readers come into this world that we're it's it's like going underwater. Um mm. we, we, we can't we can't get our feet, we can't get our bearings, we don't know how, how what what what, what what we're experiencing. But I think that's what that's exactly why we still like, mm. or at least you and I still like Heathcliff, because yeah. he's so beguiling because he comes from this this as you say, the this ballad tradition and he's got, you know, a hefty dose of Byron in him oh, and he's very much and he's yeah. he's yeah. this kind of figure of, of mystery and like we don't mm. there's so many unanswered questions like, you know, as you were saying, the the incestuous kind of um mm slant of many of the ballads yeah. suggests one reading yeah. um yeah. but there's so many there's there's also unanswered questions of like what happened in those in those years that he was away and he comes back rich and a gentleman and a gentleman yeah. and like there's no explanation <laughs> as to where he's been and how he's acquired yeah. this money he comes back with the perfect exterior the perfect yeah. masquerade of he's the gone from this like ratbag little kid who's yeah. dirty and yeah. you know and he's scrubbing got the around money and he, and he can and he's got the power Mm. And some three years somewhere in that time, he just changes his outer self. His inner self is never changes. changes. But I love that she doesn't answer that because I think no. a lesser novel novelist would have would have put a little narrative about what he did and that's, tried to explain that's it. That's true, and she never. And she does. No, she never does. She's like no. Nope. She either has complete contempt for the reader, which I don't think she does, or just complete faith mm. that you'll play the game. You'll you'll understand the mm. power of these gaps, because don't don't you think it's so? If you read something and you think, oh yeah, right, okay, I know what's going on in that, and I know yeah. who's doing what to whom and and what it means, and you close the book and you're done. You, you, you're done. Yeah. You don't really yeah. think about it much, but you can't do that no. ever with no. Wuthering Heights, can you? It's such a riddle. Like every time I read it, I notice something about it, or I or I something strikes me in you it's so yeah. it's it's opaque it's very um it's the kind of book that you have to think about and reread yeah. i don't think you can ever just read it and say i've done okay i've read it shut put it away yeah. uh, you know i've done Wuthering heights now it's yeah. the kind of novel that actually really asks you yes. to think very closely because it's that's partly because of the structure isn't mm. it because it's the same in inverted commas story told in two Twice, completely yeah. different modes and we do have i think a much more conventional romantic yeah. story with, with kathy and second kathy yeah. and hareton who um, i love i love hareton <laughs> oh so do i yeah. see i think i fell in love with him when i was 17 or 18 yeah i know well. I, I was like everyone else was going for yeah, i'm like give yeah, me hareton yeah, he just wants to yes, learn to read yes <laughs> yes yes and he was gorgeous looking yeah yeah <laughs> things are relevant yeah no and i and the way they fall in love and she shows them falling in love and it's over the reading this is why you and i yeah 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 we just we just yeah that's the way yeah Yeah. we're we're never gonna give that up are we and when she puts the primroses in his porridge yeah (laughs) and and old joseph you know the the religious fanatic is prowling around trying to stop them coming together and they rip up his current bushes don't yeah. you love that to plant their garden, garden and yeah. he goes into this spectacular volcanic rage and joseph is such a brilliant character <laughs> oh, because he's he's yes. so i love the books that i've seen editions of wuthering heights where they actually translate 
his sections <laughs> yeah. because they're so they're so um yorkshire the, dialect, the dialect. It's, yeah it's, it's pure dialect that's and right <laughs> but he's just such a beautifully like again this is yeah. like emily bronte's embeddedness yeah. in the landscape yeah. because you yeah. you know that she knows people like that yeah and the hatred he, he runs on hate mm. and runs on on control but of course he can't control mm. he's he's actually quite fascinating isn't it because his religious beliefs give him this absolute power or so he thinks it's all ahead you you don't you do this or you go to hell mm, it's very kind so of old it, testament it, it, kind of yeah. yeah that's right so he had and he remember he makes him listen to um sermons for three hours yeah the first kathy and heathcliff and they're cold and they have to sit there until they're almost dead and so he has that power that comes from his religious beliefs. You know, I know it. I'm on God's side. You're not. I'm going to heaven. You're going to hell. But he can never make that translate into the real world. He's mm. Joseph. He's the, what is he, a groom? Or I, I don't mm. know what, he has some role within the household as a menial. Mm. And he tries to control Heathcliff. He, try, he, he has all these little side skirmishes with Nellie Dean. Mm. He can't control anything. In, yeah, in the actual world. That's right. Like they comprehensively ignore all of his religious injunctions, yeah. Yeah. flagrantly, yeah. repeatedly. Yeah. You know? just turn, yeah. just look away. And, yeah, and and, not, and and so there's this, and see, Yorkshire is is, is quite close. It's much. It's, it's up. It's north, so it's close to Scotland. And there's this terrible dark history of witch burnings and, mm. and, and, and really violent stuff in, in Scotland. Mm. We'll get that in Outlander and, yeah. and the witch stuff. And still know. in the north of England too. Yeah, yeah. But, but particularly in Scotland, there were, there were really terrible... I mean, women did get burnt and there was this... What is it? Is it Calvinism? It's one of the brands, yeah, one of Calvinism. the most particularly yeah. violent versions of Christianity. So much, you know, God is love and all the rest of it. <laughs> had nothing to do with that and and that that's i think joseph is representing that kind of older mode of christianity isn't he mm. it's that, a like i said it's a very kind of old testament like god is, yes. is not merciful and kind no. god is you know yes. he's interested in retribution yeah. he's violent yeah. you you, yeah. you break a rule and that's yeah. it you're dead you and know? particularly if you are a woman mm. see that's what he he cannot he because it's interesting that joseph can't control the first kathy or the second kathy I love it. She's so rude to him. Yeah. <laughs> Tells him, you you hideous old man, you know, you're going to burn in hell. And she, this is the second Kathy. I just yeah. love all that. She gives him such sauce. <laughs> and I love that the, the two Kathys are in their different way because they're, they're, they're different, but um, they're so undecorous. They're so, yeah. you know, they're so unruly. They talk back and they, you know, they're, they're sexual and they're just so not what a lady of the time is supposed Doesn't to be. Doesn't that just leap out to you? Yeah. We, we've read, you've read, a, I've read a lot of 19th century. You've read a lot of, a lot more 18th century stuff than I have. And, but just coming out of my reading of 19th century heroines, if you've been reading a lot of Dickens, for yeah. example. Oh, yeah. And you open Wuthering Heights and there's just none of that deference and, and, and the women are very much aware of, how they should people might expect them to behave and they're very aware both the first and second kathy well that's a performance if you want that mm. you know well more fool you yeah I and even and even play the game but who gives a stuff about yeah well exactly even the first kathy when she is attempting to play the game yeah. with, in her marriage to edgar linton it, it, um she doesn't really 
toe. I mean, she gets married to the person she's supposed yeah, to get married to, but she doesn't yeah, really toe the line. She doesn't. She doesn't, and that's and she welcomes Heathcliff back and just assumes that she can have the two of them. Yeah. And there's that utter directness of their interaction, and you think. Well, who was right about women in the 19th century? Were they all, were they all ground down? Or they're just like us. You know? They mm. gave as good as they got. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, don't, I just don't think that Emily Bronte, I mean, this is like pop psychology, but I just don't think she had much time for that. No. In no. her life or in no. her writing, that, no. that kind of, you know, nimini-pimini little, no. I mean, no. the and I think you see that with Isabella because Isabella mm. is the the, mm. the pampered princess. Mm. Um, she doesn't yeah. stay the pampered princess, but she when we yeah. first meet her, she is the she pampered is. princess, and she's you know got the the curls and the, the mm. you know frilly outfits and whatever. The Mary um, Wollstonecraft, yeah, woman who plays the feminine who, game. Yeah, mm. the one she mm. plays the feminine game, and she's immediately mm. taken in by Heathcliff. And you see that Emily Bronte just has no time for that. No. No, and sees it for what it is. Yeah, it's it, that. That's you know. Where, where else do we find? I, I was thinking of Braddon. Uh, we were talking about Lady Audley's Secret. You get some of that in Braddon's um, heroines, but that um, that fearless recognition that these feminine games are just total waste of time. That. But I think Braddon's heroines do try and play the game for their own purposes. Well, Lucy, yeah, Lu yeah, yeah, yes, she does, and she sees it as an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. No, Whereas no, I think that, like, no, Kathy, Ka yeah, both Kathys, yeah, they yeah. know that it's, it's a game, different. but they're not. They no, absolutely will not play it. Yeah, yeah. We have. There's no evidence that Emily Bronte ever had any kind of love relationship herself. But I look, I. I, I just don't know because it seems to me that she knows a lot about that physical response to another person that, that you get, um, if we leave first Cathy and Heathcliff aside, you get that really brilliantly, I think, in, in Cathy and Hareton, that mm. gradual coming together because it's a physical attraction. Mm. And she knows all about that. Yeah, and she even, like, even with the second Cathy's um, relationship to Linton, where he's so, to Linton Heathcliff, where he's so kind of physically inferior. Yeah. And she at first kind of thinks, you know, yeah. well, he's my cousin and yeah. I feel sorry for him and all of that, but there's no physicality there. Yeah. And then you see her react in a physical kind of desiring yeah. way to yeah. Hareton, and that's when you see that sexual tension we would call it now play out yeah. so i think there is and it's just a i don't know there's some parts of wuthering heights um that just seem to scorch off the page yeah. yeah yeah they've got this fire to them yeah and and that can come from byron that's why i'm yeah. really interested mm. uh because in the bronte i've got on the bronte how um the parsonage website and i've got a list of the books that are in the library and child harold mm. is in the library they did love Byron. in the, the bronte parsonage library so they read i think a lot of it comes a from the ballad because the sex is in the ballads mm. it, it's not descriptions of sexual acts that, that we're used to in the 20th and 21st century but that absolutely uncompromising physical response to another mm. human being that's everywhere in the ballads it's mm. a fatal thing usually well it is in um, Heights, except for the second yeah, Kathy. Yeah. yeah yeah and and so but that sense of human closeness and human uh, 
bodies, you know, and beings responding to each other. That can come from the ballads, but I do think it comes from Byron. Mm. Um, she wouldn't get it from Wordsworth. No. <laughs> if only she read Wordsworth. I, I'd, I'd love to know. Um, I think the Iliad or the Odyssey, one or the other, is in the library. But I, I don't think she could have had any access to Catullus or, or anything no. like that. I, I think that's highly unlikely, which is so graphic. So, because what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think you have to assume that she no, understood no, no, no. this in the real world. It came from her reading. Yeah, I think it absolutely came from her reading. I yeah. don't think there's any evidence at all to suggest that yeah. she no. had any kind of no. relationship ever. No, but I don't, um, and, and she I don't didn't think want she's, it. No, I don't think she's it. the type. Yeah, no, no. Um, there's but there's such a kind of um, earthiness to yes. her writing. Yes. That's exactly right. She's not genteel, and she's, yeah, she's not genteel the, the at all. She's not interested in that. No, she's not, and she sees beneath, she, under, under all that. She 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 just has no patience with it. And that's why you get those like the the Lintons. Although Edgar Linton is okay, I reckon I he's. Like I like Edgar, Edgar Linton, yeah. but I think that there's such a. Um, the social world that he represents yeah. is treated with such contempt yeah. because it's a social world that doesn't account for. Bod the body and the bodily experience. Like I, it always strikes me in those early sequences of of the first Kathy and Heathcliff that they're so in their bodies. Yeah. They're so connected yeah. as yeah. um, you know, they live as brother and sister, whether they're yeah. brother and sister in reality yeah. or not. Um, they do live as brother and sister, and you get that that sense of childhood closeness of yes. their bodies being in touch and their bodies being these always. unruly, uncontrolled things yes. that exist. Yes. in the world you're right and they mm. they live in their bodies and their bodies exist in the world it's it's, mm. it's yes i don't know that i agree about edgar because i don't think that edgar linton is that kind of um i don't know deracinated he's not no i think he's he, great i, I think, think he's a great he has character a, his yeah. own sexual physicality too oh yeah i do i agree with that and i've always liked edgar linton but i think yeah. that like the kind of more decorous social world is yes. something that emily bronte has no time yes. for and and he he's a gentleman you know he he has those codes of behavior yeah and and he believes in them he believes in that civility um remember that scene where he's starting he wants to kick heathcliff out mm. And and Heathcliff can obviously, you know, overpower him physically. And and Kathy closes the door because Edgar Linton has called the servants to help him toss Heathcliff out. And she slams the door and locks it. And she says, "Oh no, mm. if you're going to do it, you do it yourself. You're mm. not going to hide behind the servants, servants and their yeah. cudgels. You know, you mate, <laughs> yeah. are going to do this yourself." And and that shocks him, doesn't it? Mm. He's just um, almost destroyed by that. Because in a way, she's aligning herself with with Heathcliff, with Heathcliff against yeah. him. Yeah. But he has that kind. You know, a gentleman gets his servants to throw the intruder out. That's well, right. Kathy and Heathcliff don't play by. Those no, they rules. don't. That's what I mean when I say that. Mm. But I think that he is a look. He's lovely to her. Oh, he's yes. He's he's a, he's a gentleman. Yeah, he's yeah. a gentleman, and you're yeah. right. He does have yeah. a sexual charge of his own. He does. I think he does. Yeah. In a way that Lockwood doesn't. Yeah. Lock, I love Lockwood is one of my favourite characters, but Lockwood doesn't understand sexuality either. No. He well, he thinks he's in love with Kathy. Oh, he the thinks second he Kathy, does. But he's, he's had some 
relationship before yeah. he turned up. Remember, he's at the spa and, and he sees the young woman and starts a flirtation. Yeah. And then as soon as she responds, he goes he, cold. He, he chops it, yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> and he, can, he runs a mile. Yeah. And then he thinks, oh, you know, I might be interested in this Kathy chick. And she has no idea that and he's even alive. No, no. So poor old Rookwood is the one who is, in his own way, he's sexless, isn't mm. he? Yeah, but Edgar's not sexless. No, Edgar no. isn't. And neither is... Heathcliff, but neither is Hareton. Although I don't even know about Heathcliff, because we—I don't even know if we are to read the physical relationship between the first Kathy and Heathcliff as a sexual relationship. I've never understood that about the novel. They mm. sleep together until they're twelve. They sleep in the same bed when Hindley separates them. So, and what we know about you know infantile sexuality and and, and the kind of closeness that was possible. There's every possibility that they were mm. sexually close but it's never it's not I, I don't know it seems it seems a it's it seems an irrelevant question somehow yeah can, it does can you figure that out no I mean it's certainly passionately charged but whether it's sexual is another question yeah. and I mean but there's a bodily kind of like closeness that is sexual but is is born out in different ways like the, yeah. the absolute my favorite scene is because it's so off the wall is the scene where he you know digs up her grave yes and you think like this is a victorian novel and he's like digging up her grave to like look at his love yes. and yes. um it's just just like that's that's, that's actually very victorian they were yeah. funny about death. oh i know but they, they love death but like it's just a it's just a Shocking scene, and, and he like the arranges way... for the side of the coffin. Yeah, you know, they're buried together, and there's yeah. no, there's no because he he mm. um, collapses their bodies the side. can yeah. come together after death, and that's sexual. Yeah, it whether is sexual. It, whether they've had sex or not, <laughs> but whether they've had sex or not, like he's you know yeah. digging up and hugging her dead body, yes. Yes. and um, yes. you know commingling yes. with her as yes. they um, yes. it, it, you know yes. turn to dust in. Maybe that's why it's such a tragic love story because the closeness that they want makes sexual closeness seem trivial. Yeah, when you could, you know. Your souls can, you know, Nelly, yeah. I am Heathcliff. Yeah, and then, you know, um, they're walking across so, the moors yeah, together after and death. So, and so the, 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 the way they have of being, two people being one, it makes sex seem a little bit... Yeah, know, it's a bit too kind of mundane. Well, yeah, predictable. Yeah, well, they, you know, they're, yeah, they're galloping yeah, across the moors yeah, together after yeah. death, you know. But it's not that, it's not, it's not a, it's not asexual either. No, it? it's not. No, no, no. no. It's no, too, it's, it's too it's physical. It's power of the ero erotic. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. I, I don't know. But isn't she clever the way she tells the, the story twice mm. and she makes the two interact Mm. and play off each other in an endless you get to the end of Wuthering Heights and you want to come back mm. to the beginning it's like a circle yeah, yeah. and then yeah. you know we have that coming back together of Hareton and, and, yeah. and Kathy yeah. so that the Kathy is united to the Earnshaw once again yeah. and it's just yeah. so smart yeah. it's just oh, yeah. you know yeah. the more you think about it the more complex it is I think I, th I think so too the other scene that really strikes me is that scene where Lockwood's dreaming of Kathy's ghost and saying let me you know that mm -hmm. famous let me come in yeah. and he yeah. and he grabs her wrist and pulls it across the glass, across the glass, the cut glass, so that it's yeah, bleeding. And, and you think, what a violent 
Yeah, and it trickles down onto yeah. her bedclothes. Onto her bedclothes yeah. in this kind of again yeah. sexual yeah. Um, image. It's I've just... never read any anything remotely anywhere near that that scene. It's just such a like. That's why I think that it has this ability to confuse people and also to beguile yeah. people because yeah. there's no book that's anything like it. No, no. Yes, it comes off the the, the as you say, it comes off the ballads and all of that, but it's not we're not used that to that. Either. No, and it's not, In a novel. it can't be reduced to that. It yeah. can't be reduced to anything. Is that what no. we're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can think of all kinds of things that it might be, but you can never reduce it to any one of them. Mm. But isn't it, don't you think the way she writes his fear of of Kathy, the, the, the Rafe child, mm. outside? Because you, you never even know if that's meant to be a supernatural, if it really yeah. is a ghost. Or if it's just a dream. Or if it's his... Very, it's very Freudian. His mm. own terrors. He he dreams. It comes out of his. Mm. He invents the wraith child. It comes out of Lockwood. Yeah, and you then what does know. that say about Lockwood? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you you don't actually know. Yeah, but that terror, and mm. he's so frightened, and he's screaming in this mm. in this quiet, cold house, isolated house. He's screaming so much he wakes up the whole household. And don't you love the things that he tries to push against the window? It's yeah. the books. It's the books, that's right. He tries to keep her out with the books. I mean, really. You and know. then he's in this, like, <laughs> child's bed. Yeah. Yeah, and Let it's also... Yeah. I've been roaming the mall for, is it 25 20 years? years? Why yeah. won't you let me in? Yeah. And then poor Heathcliff comes out. And she disappears. And yeah, she, you know, and, and then, he, oh, God. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> it's endlessly he's brilliant. so angry, and he grabs on his his clothes, and he staggers to get out of the room, and he's all the imps of Satan are in this place. <laughs> and he, poor Lockwood, and the dogs attack him, yeah. and he, he gets, uh, it goes in a snow drift, you know, up over his People head. People miss and, how funny it is. Uh, it's very funny. It's funny. See, I think that's something that a lot of um, critics don't pick up. Yeah. Because I remember reading some, this is years ago, I've been reading about this novel for so long, but it was all in the context of new criticism and practical criticism and all these very blokey kind of analyses of, of women's writing. And, and it was just that, you know, she 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 doesn't understand what she's doing and and, and it's all, you know, it, it's, 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 it's unavailable to her somehow. Mm. It's, oh, sorry, I lost the point of what we were saying. Funny. Oh, yes, that's right. And they were criticising, they quoted that scene where she's describing the dogs in the kitchen. Mm. Other dogs haunted other recesses and some idiot was saying, I mean, you come on, this is just bad prose. But it's not. It's funny. Mm, it's funny, it, it, yeah. All the dogs, these dogs from hell yeah. are lurking in, in the kitchen. And you can see, like, Lockwood being like, yeah, where am he, I? He What's happening? That's right. And Juno. Yeah. Um, Juno is, is, the dog's names are actually quite significant. Um, I can't think of the other two, but Juno is the goddess of the maternal, the mother. And, and the so... The wife of the... Yeah, yeah. of Zeus. And so... Yeah. So yes, I I think it's I think it's funny. I think it yeah, has it is that funny. black yeah humor that comes out of gothic. Even like of... even like Hindley Hindley Earnshaw's like drunken kind of ravings, yeah. and when he drops the remember he drops yeah. Hanson off yeah. the balcony off yeah. the stairs, and yeah. and Heathcliff 
accidentally catches him. And he's so disappointed that he's gone. Yeah, and he's like, oh, crap, that could have been a good chance to, you know, exert some kind of accidental revenge on my... And it's just, it's, you know, there's this black kind of humour about this drunk man dropping his baby and then the worst person in the world accidentally saves him, almost against himself. And I love that relationship that develops between Hanton and Heathcliff, where Heathcliff is so terrible to Hanton but also thinks he's the best part of them. And he says that, you know, Hanton is... Yeah. What does he say? He says something like, um, like, I've abused him. I've done nothing but abuse him his entire life. Yeah. And yet he's, he represents the best of all of us. Yes. And, yeah. you know, he acknowledges that Hareton is a good guy. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. And it, it all yeah. tr- goes back to that, that beautiful scene where he drew where he accidentally catches him. Yeah. In his and arms. saves yeah. him. We have five minutes left, we and have we haven't talked about, haven't the talked about the poetry. You've done a lot of work on the poetry well, recently. This, I, I'm yes, I I started writing a journal article. I was going to do it on Emily Bronte and, and another poet, Emily Mid Victorian, and, and a late nineteenth century poet. And I just became so enthralled <laughs> by her poetry. I thought, no, 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 I, I just have to write on the poetry. So this is what I'm doing at the moment. So there are some poems I know quite well, the ones that I've taught from the Norton Anthology, and and I I know that. So I'm just beginning to explore her... Her poetry is, as I guess it's as you would expect, it's from Wuthering Heights. It's it's extraordinary stuff. And it's very mysterious because you can read a lot of her stuff as straight lyrics, as Mm. romantic lyrics, the the poet um, expressing themselves. Um, using poetry to sort of negotiate a, a, a self with the world, as Wordsworth does, as, as well, they all do, really, all the romantics. But a lot of her lyrics are from Gondor, mm. so they have speakers. They're, they're almost, but they're not quite, like dramatic monologues. monologues yeah. And and so, unfortunately, she had two notebooks. She and and so she was going through. She was careful. She was going through her poetry, and so she separated out the Gondol lyrics into one book, and these other lyrics into another book. So we suspect that that book B, I think it's called, can be thought of as I call them straight lyrics. It is, it is, it's, it's, you pick up a Wordsworth poem and mm. you read the eye and you know that there's some kind of problematic, though it is, relationship with the poet. So you can sort of read those as genuine straight lyrics. And then you've got the more dramatic stuff in, in, in the Gondol lyrics. But then that is made more complicated because there's another manuscript where she starts combining the two. Mm. And I find that absolutely fascinating. So you do not know really, this, I prefer this, you don't know what status these things have in her own mind as to what they were expressing and and which of them has the the context of Gondor and, mm. and which of them have a context of the poet sitting down to kind of explain themselves to the world or crisis lyric and the romantic lyric. So I've just found that all so fascinating and the poems are very simple. The language is simple. It's not complex stuff. But they're deeply mysterious. They're um, what they're actually about. And I've never come across a poet who can use simple language in such a 
multi-layered and resonant way. Mm. And they're, they're quite like, I mean, I haven't read them certainly as recently and not as many as you, but um, I did a little bit of work on them and they're, they're very much like Wuthering Heights in that they're about these, you know, cold and yes. mysterious and yes. death. They're and, about death. Um, yes. You know, yes. the supernatural. But it's never, what I found odd or um, unusual about reading her poetry was exactly what you said, that it's never quite clear what's actually going on, even though they seem on the surface to be, you know, some of them will be the death, like the death mm. side, the grave mm. side, mm. lament or, or mm. whatever. Mm. But they're not that at the same time. No. No, and they're true. so sort of declarative too. Mm. Like I'm thinking of like No Coward Soul is Mine. It's probably her fav- most famous. Most famous and that's one, yeah. so... That's a gondola lyric. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And mm. But it's so declarative and it's hard to kind of pass where that is. Is that a character? Yes. Because it is a character. Yeah. Yeah. A, a character in her gondola yeah. sagas yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. speaking, but it also seems to speak for her in yeah. some kind of weird yeah. way. Yeah. Because, I mean, if there's any... Like, yeah, so what's, it, what's yeah. the difference? If it is a gondola speaker... Yeah. Male and female, yeah. What's the difference? But it seems to be so bound up in like our image of her as well yeah, that she isn't yeah. this coward soul. That yeah. she is this, yeah. You know, yeah. I love that story about her. Sorry to to go to the biography again, but that story about her when she gets bitten by a dog, and she oh. um and she. Have you ever heard this story? She no. gets bitten by a dog, and she thinks oh, yes, she's going to get she, rabies, and, she, and so she cauterizes the wound with so a hot yes. poker. Yes, yes, yes. So she just coolly picks up a hot poker and applies it to her wound for years. by herself. And you think, oh, my God, this is a rare woman indeed. A very, very yeah. <laughs> the other dog story from, um, this is from Gaskell's Life of Elizabeth Bronte. I, um, uh, Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte. Um, they, she had the Mastiff, the bull Mastiff, Keeper. Oh, and she used to beat him. And she, yes, <laughs> because they used to have these white, snow white counterpanes on the bed. And Keeper used to love to go up and sleep on the bed. Of course. And Keeper had been told not to go up and not to sleep on the bed. And nevertheless, Keeper did. So she dragged him down and she beat him mercilessly. And he sort of... uh, No coward soul is mine. No, no. And it was a real beating. I mean, it, it, it just the violence of it. And, and she adored the animal. Yeah. And after she'd beaten him, she was bathing his wounds and it, it's all very... Well, I mean, you know, to pick up a hot poker off the fire and apply it to yourself... Cauterise yourself. Cauterise your own wound. No, no, without we're, blinking. We're, we're just, not talking about... No. This isn't like some little pampered little princess. <laughs> we're not in Kansas anymore. No. <laughs> we have completely ran out of time, but we I suspect have. that we could have gone for about five we maybe. probably could have come. Yeah. Can we come back next year, maybe when I when I've done more reading of the poetry? Yes. Because I you don't even have to finish the sentence. Good. Yes. That's yes. lovely. See, no coward soul is Stephanie. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Although I, I would draw the line at cauterizing my own wounds. Yeah, I think you would. I don't think you'd beat up your dogs, would you? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you, Steph. This has been a pleasure as usual. Yes, it has. Um, so thanks for listening. If you've got any Emily Bronte thoughts, send them our way. We always love talking about Emily Bronte to anybody who will listen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got any um, suggestions or um, you'd like to leave a review, you can go to Apple Podcasts or from thelighthouse.org. And we'll see you in a week or two weeks or so. Lovely. Thanks. Bye. Bye.